Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda. And before we get started, I do have a couple of announcements to make. Um, if you're listening right now, uh, that means, well, I guess right now is whenever you're listening. But if you're listening to it, this about five days within this coming out, uh, that means I'm currently traveling. I'm going to be in France, Italy, Spain, England, and Scotland in the great Bush Gardens of Williamsburg, Virginia. Yes, I'm going to Bush Gardens. I'm going back, going to Virginia Beach uh, for a week, so uh, I won't have time to record. Um, however, we have some really good archive episodes that we wanted to slowly release in situations like this, and this one is, is definitely one of our best ones. Uh, we had a chance to speak to Norman Oler, and uh, we did a podcast on drugs in the Third Reich. Uh, Norman Oler is an author. He's a German-born author. Uh, New York Times bestseller. He wrote a book called Blitzed, and the book is basically about how Hitler was all drugged up on Adderall, and so was the rest of the Third Reich. And it was really interesting. Uh, we get into some juicy details about Hitler's uh, doctor, who was basically a doctor feel-good. So I think most of you guys haven't heard this, so we're going to be re-releasing this one so you get a chance. Uh, fair warning, this is in the early days. Um, all the audio sounds pretty good, except myself. Uh, for some reason, my audio sounds like I'm talking through a tin can, but I actually don't do too much talking in this one, so it actually works out. Um, the other announcement I have to make is that we will be, we're in the process of updating our album art. So we have a, an artist who's working on a, a new Bro History podcast art label or whatever you want to call it. So don't be surprised within the next few days that the podcast art is different. Like we don't, we're not wiped off the planet or something like that. We're just getting an updated album art. But um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I know I rambled on for two minutes before we hit the topic, but uh, I love you guys. And please do not forget to rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to help us grow. Uh, as I record this, we're at 143 ratings. Uh, let's try to get that number up to 150. Again, that is the number one way to help us uh, rate and review the podcast. All right, let's get started. so excited to have you on Norman thanks so much for coming um well we've been uh reading your book over the last day or, or two and just really got very very deep into it but before we jumped in there I'd really love to ask you just some general questions about yourself so that our viewers are a little bit more familiar with you tell us a little bit about yourself Norman well I'm a born and bred novelist I published um four novels um I've been doing nothing else but writing in the last uh, couple of decades. So that's, uh, that's all I do in life, except for having a family, of course. <laughs> and uh, Blitzed uh, is my first nonfiction book. I also do films. I'm, I'm writing a screenplay for a bigger film right now. That's awesome. Well, to live as an artist. So it doesn't really matter if it's writing or painting or filmmaking. I think 
making art uh, is what really interests me. Well, you're definitely uh, on the right track for that. I think, you know, with all the books that you've written uh, and all the screenplays that you've done uh, and all the nonfiction that you've done as well, uh, it seems to me like you're you're a master at your art there. And uh, just thanks again for, for coming on. So um, let's talk a little bit about the book, though. Um, so Blitzed, uh, Drugs in the Third Reich, um, New York Times bestseller. Uh, I'd like to start off from like the beginning of the book. Um, in the Weimar Republic. So I was hoping that you can tell us a little bit about the socio-political climate um, in the Weimar Republic and like how it affected uh, like drug use in Germany. Well, the, the Weimar Republic was the first democracy on German soil. And uh, it was it started right after Germany lost the First World War. Um, so the society was very open to... Um, experiments and there was was also a weak democracy um people didn't really know how what the future would bring many were still traumatized from the world war uh, from the loss uh, in the in the world war especially so uh, especially berlin became um a crazy city basically a city that was extremely cheap People from all over Europe came to Berlin to um, have fun and to enjoy in the uh, nightlife of Berlin and uh, drugs were everywhere. Um, so the, the Weimar Republic was very different to the era that followed, which was the Third Reich. And already during the Weimar Republic, there was this right wing movement, which uh, didn't like all this freedom on the streets. Mm -hmm that if we ever get to power, we will stop all of that. And those were the Nazis, of course. That's really interesting. Um, I, I, your characterization of Berlin uh, during the Weimar Republic sounds a lot like my experience when I was um, studying abroad there in college. It's cheap and fun uh, and, and very liberal at that. Um, so what would you say that um, uh, the, the cause for uh, that right-wing movement, what, what, what was that backlash against the freedom and, and the uh, and the drug use, and uh, among other things. Well, the Weimar Republic suffered heavily from the Versailles Treaty, which was the treaty that was imposed on Germany after uh, World War One. Uh, and the Nazis always said, "Once we're in power, we're going to get rid of the Versailles Treaty," which is actually what they did. So that was that gave them a lot of support because uh, German economy was suffering heavily under the Versailles Treaty. That's right. I remember reading something about how the marks, uh, the, the exchange rate for one, one U.S. dollar was like something like billion marks or something crazy like that, right? Yeah, that was uh, insane inflation and uh, people were really poor in the Weimar Republic, lots of homeless and jobless people and um, the democracy, the, the parties were weak. They didn't really represent the people anymore. So the left and right uh, wing wings got stronger and stronger and the communists were fighting the Nazis in the street. Um, but then eventually uh, big capital uh, decided to support Hitler um, and um, the Nazis came to power and the communists were smashed. What um, One thing that, that jumped out at me early on in the book was talking about how the people in the Weimar Republic um, were very escapist. Uh, they, they used uh, drugs and er entertainments like that to kind of escape from their nature. Do you see any parallels um, between like Weimar Republic um, 
uh, uh, drug use and say today's American uh, opioid crisis, if you're familiar with um, with that? Yeah, yeah, I'm quite familiar with it. And um, I mean, there's lots of parallels, unfortunately, or uh, we, maybe it's a little bit scary to think of those parallels between Definitely. our democracies that are more and more getting uh, weak and getting weaker uh, on the on the on the verge of failing us and uh, right wing movements becoming more becoming stronger. Um, so um, as I mean, we see the the, the rise of right wing populist uh, leaders all over the world, so, and um, it's obviously it's obviously very scary. Um, and I don't really know what to do. Um, <laughs> against it i think i mean the problem is that socialism has really lost a lot of credit because it basically failed so um, we seem to be without alternative uh, moving from a democracy into a, uh, a hybrid uh, of uh, between fascism and and dem democracy which is what we're having now in the west and it's quite troubling actually to me, at least. Definitely. And I think I would agree with you on that. Um, I think that the, especially in, in the United States here, you know, the conditions of, of uh, the economy and, and the job situations um, really helped promote more uh, conservative or right wing uh, ideologies to come to the fore because, you know, as you said, um, socialist ideas or, or more liberal or um, uh, left leaning ideas were failing, you know, they, they weren't, um, uh, bringing the, uh, the expected or, um, outcomes. Uh, and I, I like, I liked drawing the parallel between, uh, the folks that were using, uh, drugs in the Weimar Republic, um, as, you know, uh, a parallel to the American opioid crisis, because a lot of people here are using these drugs, these opioid opioids, um, to escape from the reality uh, that that is um, here in America and probably all over the world as well. And yeah. uh, what I found super I, interesting were, were the mega pharma corporations. But but continue. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, that's, yeah, for sure. Well, I was going to ask about the um, the mega pharma corporations. Um, so uh, Merck and 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 Bayer uh, and how they <clears throat> basically invented uh, a lot of these uh, drugs. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean. Germany didn't have the colonies that the United, um, well, not the United States, but uh, United Kingdom and France, for example, had. And uh, being a modern um, performance-oriented society, Germany also needed stimulants. Even in the 19th century, there was a big craving for things that keep you going. So um, German companies uh, had to invent pharmaceutical companies had to invent stimulants. They couldn't just import them from colonies because Germany didn't have many colonies. Mm -hmm. So um, things like, um, well, there was one chemist, for example, who worked for the Bayer company who invented two drugs within the span of 11 days in the late 19th century. That's incredibly fascinating. <laughs> there was aspirin and heroin. <laughs> so two of the most uh, prominent drugs that, numb the pain were invented within the span of 11 days by, by a single man 
And uh, Bayer uh, wasn't sure at all whether aspirin or heroin would be their big hit. I mean, they, heroin is their patent. They had ads for heroin. They marketed it as uh, good for uh, coughs, uh, was good against cough, against the flu, good for babies to fall asleep. So um, it was a different time. Drugs were not stigmatized yet as they are, as some of them are today. Um, and even companies weren't sure like what these inventions that they were making really uh, meant. When, when the economy in Berlin picked up, weren't a lot of workers using um, Pervitin, right? Am I saying that correctly? Pervitine. Pervitine. Weren't a lot of them using it to just increase their focus in the work- workplace? Because that sounds a lot like, honestly, New York City, where uh, Danny and I both live where there's a lot of people who are on amphetamines to increase their work performance, which not just well, in New York, but all across America. Pervitine is an interesting case because when the Nazis took power in 33, one of their first moves was to um, criminalize all drugs and uh, make drugs like cocaine illegal and um, connect cocaine use uh, with uh, anti-moral behavior and um, it was it's, it's quite interesting that then in 1937 there's a berlin company that develops a new drug that no one stigmatizes uh for a couple of years actually um, it's completely legal over-the-counter drug it's called methamphetamine um the Temna company markets methamphetamine as pavitine that's the brand name um and pavitine each pill of pervitine contained three milligrams of pure methamphetamine and it became extremely popular in Germany in 1938 already. Um, even chocolates came onto the market laced mm-hmm. with methamphetamine. They were marketed for women so they could um, clean the house better and uh, be better you know, housewives. And one piece of these chocolates uh, contained 13 milligrams of pure methamphetamine, which is quite a lot. Actually. That's crazy. Um, yeah, there's a funny ad printed in Blitz um, that shows the happy German housewife uh, picking into the, like getting a chocolate out of the box. This The slogan was uh, Hildebrand, that was the brand name, Hildebrand chocolates, always a delight. And the fun thing was that you would even lose weight if you ate a methamphetamine laced chocolate because meth basically curbs your appetite. Yeah. So you just eat one chocolate satisfied and you have enough energy for the day so these these products were really popular in nazi germany um and they were popular one because they were very effective i mean uh we all know that methamphetamine is a dangerous drug but at the time they didn't know this actually the studies didn't show this the universities did studies uh, on methamphetamine and they said it just you don't need to sleep as much. You're not afraid. You're more talkative. You're more social. So they kind of highlighted positive effects of methamphetamine. And um, doctors started uh, to recommend it to their patients because it was a time, as you said, uh, as New York today, Berlin in 1938 was you know, the place to be. You, everyone had work or everyone wanted to be part of the you know, big performance of this um, performance-driven society, which was the dictatorship of the Third Reich. So 
um, pervitin kind of helped you through the day. It made everything fun. You know, you talked to people, you went to meetings, you went to stupid Nazi marches. Everything was more fun with the uh, methamphetamine. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's how the, 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 it was a perfect drug for the dictatorship. It's not a, methamphetamine is not a drug that makes you think uh, out of the box. It makes you think within the lines that are dictated to you. So um, it's not a it's not a it's not a subversive drug. It's an affirmative drug. So um, it's a good drug for a dictatorship. While, for example, marijuana would be a very bad drug for a dictatorship because you know people kind of. Everybody would be yeah, slow. <laughs> Everyone be too too busy yeah. eating Cheetos. It's too, it's too individualistic yeah. to yes. smoke. While taking meth is kind of makes you part of a bigger machine. At least that's my take on it, and that's how it worked in Nazi Germany. And also just a pure utility of taking a drug that just that boosts your performance and your focus. Um, can you tell me about when the German army? started using it well the german army had a um a so-called physiologist um who was responsible for performance enhancement of the army it was a professor called otto ranke he was working in berlin in the military uh, medical academy um high-ranking professor who uh, discovered pervitin because it was you know basically around so he he discovered it for the army. He thought this, everyone's taking it. Uh, if housewives clean their houses better, maybe soldiers will shoot better or soldiers will not, you know, get tired after a 10 hour battle, but they can go on for another 10 hours maybe. So he did um, tests among young medical officers in Berlin in 38 and 39 and found that methamphetamine is perfect for the soldier. That was his opinion. Um, at least that was the result of his tests. So um, he recommended it to the uh, Surgeon General of the German Army, who at first rejected the idea because he simply didn't get it. But um, then after the attack on Poland, where many soldiers had voluntarily used um, pervitin, um, they changed their opinion uh, and they made uh, Pervitin an official drug of the German army, the Wehrmacht. So it, for the first time, it was officially used on May 10th, 1940, when 35 million dosages of methamphetamine were shipped to the front lines and used by the German troops when they invaded um, Belgium, Holland and France and beat all of these countries within um, the span of four weeks. That's that's so interesting, and 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 I see that against the lens of, of of like the irony. Uh, I, I know that you know, as you said earlier, uh, there was a, a right wing you know kind of conservative movement against drugs. Nevertheless, the you know the German armies all hopped up on methamphetamines, and uh, even more uh, to the point, I know that uh, you write about how Hitler was uh, as w what we would call straight edge, like a, a, no no dr uh, no alcohol, no cigarettes, no. No other poisons, but eventually yeah. becomes the most doped up out of all of them. Um, kind of right. Can you can you talk a little bit about that that like strange irony that hit that the Hitler had? Yeah, and Hitler really represents um, the whole system in this case. Um, 
because on the one hand, the Nazis were all for purity. On the other hand, they were competing with each other and uh, with um, their competitors in other countries. So um, if you compete, you're going to use everything you can in order to get better than your competitor. So, um, and also Hitler was competing. I mean, he was the dictator, which meant that he wanted to take all the decisions and be on the job the whole time. And he was very distrustful towards his highest um, ranking generals. So he didn't want them to make military decisions. Um, and he was, he started off kind of harm in a harmless way by taking um, vi uh, vitamins intravenously, which is actually what I passed a, a health food shop in LA uh, a couple of months ago. And they had, they had a billboard outside you, saying you could go in and get a vitamin B12 shot. It was a vitamin. Yep. <laughs> yeah, B12 They're very popular. Shot now. <laughs> in, yeah. I thought about Hitler because he got a lot of those in the beginning. That was kind of what he, what kind of got him through the day and got him through, you know, very long parades and actually lifting his arm for so long. I mean, it's quite difficult actually, but he did it uh, by getting um, vitamins and injections that made him stronger um, and you can uh, read that uh, in detail in the notes of Theo Morales, personal physician, mm -hmm. which are stored yes. in the National Archives of the United States and also in the National Archives in Germany. So each day you can actually have a look at what Hitler used that day. And um, it's quite interesting. So from the beginning, from 36 on, when he meets Morel, he actually gets one to two in intravenous injections a day, which is you know, a crazy amount of injections. Uh, over the years, obviously. Uh, Morel, in, in your book, he really s comes off as almost like a, uh, I guess to me at least, he came off as kind of like a Rasputin character. Like he was one of, he seemed like one of Hitler's most personal and closest friends and advisors in a sense. Uh, can you explain who he is and, and how, how they met? Well, Morel is a typical Dr. Feelgood. Um, he was a celebrity physician in Berlin in the early 30s, treating uh, sports stars, actresses, blue bloods. Um, he was very expensive. Uh, you wouldn't go to him if you had a disease. You would go to him if you wanted to feel better. Uh, if you had a performance that night, he would give you, um, you know, maybe an opioid or uh, if you had, you know, if your lover would come over, he would give you a, a hormone, a male hormone if you were a man. So he was that kind of guy. And he was a good doctor. I mean, in that sense that he, you know, he knew his medicine and he knew how to actually make you better. And he was good in giving injections, which was um, not so easy at the time because the syringes were much thicker than they are today. Um, so Morel was a highly skilled weirdo in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the medical profession. And when he met Hitler in 36, um, he treated his stomach pains, which no other doctor could have treated or was able, no other doctor was able to treat them, to treat Hitler's pain in the, uh, in the, in the stomach and in his intestines. And he was, he always had problems and Morel was able to get rid of these problems very quickly through his, uh, unorthodox approach. Um, I mean, he would give you an opioid, shoot it up into your veins. If you had like a flu coming on, of course the flu would go away and you would feel absolutely fantastic. But, um, 
you know, it comes with a price and Hitler didn't really think about the price. Morel didn't think about the price or maybe he did. It's unclear whether he was aware that he would make the Hitler actually dependent on him, whether he would, you know, even do this on purpose. It's not clear. I mean, he was, he became Hitler's personal physician. Hitler often said to him, I have pain, I have cramps in my stomach, get rid of it now. And Morel gave him an injection and it got rid of it. So um, that's how a very close relationship uh, developed because Morel was always there. He was always in the next room or in the, in the very room where Hitler was. So whenever Hitler wanted to have a very strong shot of uh, oxycodone, which at the time was marketed as oikodal in Germany, Morel would just come over and give it to him and Hitler would feel fantastic. So you can imagine what happened over the years between those two men. They became very much dependent on each other. And as I understand it, uh, that closeness um, drew a little bit of jealousy. As, as Towards the end of the book, you write a little bit about almost like a doctor's war going on uh, in the later days of the war. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean... Hitler was a, uh, you know, he was the highest price in in the highest uh, ranks of the Nazi regime. So anyone, everyone wanted to be as close as possible to him because that meant that your power would increase. For example, Albert Speer, the architect and later uh, armaments uh, minister for for arms, uh, was very close to Hitler. Uh, Bormann, his secretary, was very close. Um, Himmler was close, Goebbels was close, but the closest of all was Morel and all the others would, became jealous of him and uh, suspicious what was going on. What's, why is Hitler, why does Hitler like this ugly, fat, stupid uh, doctor? <laughs> no one else liked him. Uh, he had terrible table manners, which people were complaining about. Apparently he smelled bad. Uh, Hitler said, we, we don't have morale, so we could smell him. We have him, so he, he makes me feel good. He makes me be uh, healthy. He made everybody feel healthy, right? Well, more and more, actually, of the highest uh, Nazi guys became his patients as well because it increased your standing with Hitler if you also went to morale and trusted morale and got the same drugs. So it kind of created uh, an inner circle within the inner circle. Um which is actually very interesting, you know, dynamics that was happening. And you can, you know, learn a lot about those dynamics if you, you know, look at morale and what was happening. And so that was, that's an important story of Blitz. You can actually, you know, feel like the fly on the wall that looks into the inner, inner system, the inner workings of, uh, you know, the very secretive uh, uh, in a circle of the Nazi regime. Um, but Morel was right there and he writes about it in his notes. His notes are very elaborate and uh, interesting and detailed, actually. Um, so uh, a whole new story opens up. So they, they tried to get rid of Morel, the other guys who were jealous. And um, that was the doctor's war because Hitler also had other doctors. He had like a personal surgeon and a personal dentist. And so they kind of all... Um, um, they all joined forces against Morel uh, in order to remove him from his position of personal physician, but they failed because in the end Hitler said, um, Morel is my doctor, I chose him. We in Germany have uh, free 
well, they had healthcare even back then. And with healthcare comes a free choice of doctor. So he said, and I chose Morel and what's going on between patient and doctors, only the concern of the patient and the doctor, no one else. So Hitler kind of um, sheltered and protected uh, Morel. So the doctor's war was won by Morel. Actually, the other doctors had to leave the headquarters. No, I was just going to say, how much of that protection from um, uh, uh, that Hitler uh, afforded Morel do you think was a, like a part of his addiction to the drugs that Morel was uh, administering to him? Well, it's only because of the addiction, obviously. I mean, the whole relationship was about the addiction. And um, in '44, Morel's brother died, um, and he Morel obviously wanted to go to the funeral, which was a couple of com- couple of hundred kilometers away and Hitler didn't want to let him because he said what you're going to be gone for three days and who's going to give me my injections in those three days and I, I won't let you go and Morel actually ordered his um yeah, his his uh, uh how do you say that the guy who who substituted him in his practice in Berlin he ordered him to come to the headquarters uh, to give his apprentice Mm-hmm. Yeah, to give the injections while he so he could go to the funeral. It was really important for him to go, and he went. And when he came back, Hitler was totally pissed at him. He said, "Your assistant couldn't wasn't so good with the injections, and especially Hitler didn't want to disclose even to the assistant what he was actually using and craving, which was mostly the oikodal, the oxycodone." Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the addiction was everything. Injection X, as as they wrote it down, right. <laughs> Well, it depends. Sometimes uh, Morel writes uh, Oikodal, which is the German brand name for oxycodone. Um, he writes uh, Oikodal, 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams. It, in- it doubles actually in September 44. Um, so then we know pretty clearly that it was um, oxycodone. Sometimes he writes X. Uh, so we don't know actually what that means. Um, it just means an injection. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Um, sometimes, you know, by how he writes, how Hitler, Hitler's personality changes from before and after the injection, we can assume that it wasn't just vitamins, but uh, uh, something stronger like an opioid. Um, but uh, uh, Morel's notes are not so easy to decipher, actually. It's, uh, they, they look, um, it looks like he, he wrote everything down. Uh, every detail is, is written, but sometimes he kind of tries to blow smoke. Uh, how do you say smoke in your face? No, yeah, or, no, I get it. Like, uh, I'm trying to mask the, the actual, um, procedures. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be very open and masking it at the same time, uh, because he was obviously afraid that at one point, um, someone would uncover what he's actually giving to Hitler, which is exactly what happened now, but now he's already dead, so he doesn't care anymore. Right. He was probably afraid this would happen while he was he and Hitler were still around. Yeah, at the end of the book, Hitler, I'm going to choose my words wisely here, Hitler really seems like just kind of a sick, sad, dope addict. How, and I just wondered... For the rest of the of the society that was that was um, you know taking drugs, was there like a rehab or a, re- a rehabilitation program for for maybe military that were hooked on drugs um, after the war? Well, the German Luftwaffe, the Air Force, already had a rehab program in place uh, in 1940 or 41. I'm not sure. Quite early, actually. Um, because they had given a lot of pervitin to their pilots because they had less pilots and less um, aircraft than the Royal Air Force, their biggest enemy. So they tried to kind of balance uh, it out by having their pilots flying more missions. And then this was only possible with methamphetamine. And then they were, um, they had to go into rehab programs uh, after that. Um, the army, also wanted to install a big rehab program, but they didn't have the um, resources anymore when they wanted to do that in 44 because they were already, you know, getting their ass kicked, uh, especially on the Eastern Front. So they didn't care anymore if soldiers came back, you know, uh, addicted, who, who, you know, who cares? I mean, they if they came back alive, that was what counted, or if they could, you know, fight all of, till their death, that's what counted. So no one really cared about it few drug problems on the side um but i mean the the drug you know the drug stayed with germany and pervitin was still being massively used in the 50s and in the second part of the 40s so um, a lot of soldiers who became addicted on methamphetamine during the war then uh, still took it when the once the war was over not everyone um i read a study actually that was done on the Vietnam War, that quite a few soldiers who were fighting on drugs in Vietnam, um, when they returned to the United States, they stopped using because they were in a completely different surrounding. Suddenly they're not in the jungle fighting uh, 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 an enemy you can't see, but they were back with their wives and kids. 
So um, sometimes the drug uh, intake just uh, goes down when the situation changes. Danny, are you still with Sorry us, Danny? About that. I thought I had my um, mic unmuted. <laughs> um, that's all extremely interesting. Um, I know that we're uh, you know coming up on time here, uh, so I, I figured maybe we'd ask one one yeah. last question uh, to send our yeah. Our folks is there off is there anything? Now, there was so many interesting parts of this book, uh, and for our listeners, if you haven't already read it, go pick it up. It's it's a page turner. My favorite weird fun fact about the book was Lenny Riefenstahl got morphine enemas, uh, which I thought was not only salacious, but hilarious. Also from uh, Morel. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the most interesting or weird uh, thing that you think our audience should know about uh, about your book? Um. Well, that's a hard question. Uh, I mean, I already talked about the book quite a bit. Um, I just think it's important to understand that drugs are very potent agents um, and that we have to be very careful as a population to um, give away the power of... um, understanding drugs and um, to give the power to the government, uh, I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem when governments regulate drugs in the way they are doing it right now because uh, they don't seem to be doing a very good job at it. Um, We're losing the war on drugs. We're having a huge opioid crisis. I think uh, the the state has not really shown that it's able to handle um, the, the, the question of how to deal with drugs in a responsible manner. So um, I think um, I think we need a big uh, shift uh, in, in our drug policy. Definitely. It's not really the main topic of but my book, which certainly shows how a government abuses um, its power uh, to uh, use Agreed, uh, yeah. drug policies to regulate uh and uh control society in a, in a in a very dangerous way yeah i i totally agree with that and i think it resonates a lot uh with current climates with um you know the relationship between governments uh healthcare, uh and um large pharmaceutical companies um it's it's clear that we're over medicating it's clear that we're abusing um you know these substances uh and despite the short-term gains and benefits uh, of using them, there there are clearly large negative implications of, of prolonged and sustained and, and overuse and abuse uh, of these substances. Well, I think our way of life is just um, really problematic. And um, because it's so problematic, people you know, use drugs in order to cope with the unnatural way of uh, capitalist um, life. So... Um, it's not really the drugs that are to blame. It's really how we organize our societies, how we treat each other, how we treat nature, how we treat minorities, how we, you know, finance wars, how we, you know, destroy the planet. That's really, that's, that, those are huge problems. And I think drug abuse is like a symptom of that. Couldn't agree more with that. What about you, Henry? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's, it's, I couldn't agree more. 
Well, Norman, thank you so much uh, for your time today uh, and for talking about your book. Um, again, uh, you're more than welcome on whenever you like. Uh, this was incredibly enlightening. Uh, and uh, yeah, we want to thank you again for coming out uh, and and um, doing this interview with us. Um, for our listeners out there, um, the book, once again, is Blitzed, uh, Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. Uh, we'll try and put a link on our Facebook page there. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And uh, yeah, don't get high on your own supply, as Henry always says. <laughs>